Well, thanks for taking that seven-minute break seriously. Thanks for coming right back. I appreciate it. Um, And thanks for sticking around. You guys are awesome. And to take, I mean, you had to, you're at home, and you're on the couch, and you're like, there's a thing at church, and i got to put on my pants. (laughs) And you did it. And you came on out. I mean, I appreciate it so much. And to have you fly me in from Dallas and, and to have this. And, and it's just such a privilege and an honor to be with you and, and, um, <clears throat> and talk about dinosaurs and, and the proteins that are in them. And that's just, I love doing that because they just look so young and fit the flood idea there. And, but let's, let's just take a few minutes to look at some biochemistry, looking at the beginning of life. And uh, this topic here is a real winner. So if you get in a conversation, let's say with an atheist, uh, this turns into a whole set of great questions that we can ask someone in earnest and honestly with genuine curiosity. We don't want to ask questions like this, oh yeah, where'd the first life come from? (laughs) That defeats the whole purpose. So we care about what the other person thinks and what led them to the conclusions that they've, that they've arrived at. And we want them to see why. Some, some, a lot of folks have never been asked what they believe, let alone why they believe it. So let's just ask. And we're going to turn some of, these, some of these observations from life, thinking about a cell, cellular life, into uh, some questions. Uh, there are t- at least 12 impossible steps for natural processes to overcome in order to make the first cell. Um, And yet, despite that, despite these facts from science, a recent survey asked this question, true or false, scientists researching the origin of life have created simple life forms from scratch. That is, laboratory experiments that approximate the Earth's early atmosphere, scientists have mixed chemicals that that they believe to have existed before the first life forms and they successfully created simple life forms such as bacteria. How many people would say in our culture that they agree with this? What do you think the results were? 50-50? 40-60? 60 70? 73% true. I mean, these are your neighbors. And they're, and, and they're leapfrogging 12 impossible steps in this imaginative scenario where natural processes can make a cell and life out of crystals and chemicals and lightning strikes. Give me a break. Well, we're going to look at some of the details on that to, to equip you to have these conversations. So here's my cute little cell. He's a sickly cell, but he's the simplest cell that we have, mycoplasma. Okay, And it's got the fewest number of genes in this actual cell. It's a, it's a bacterium. And um, he's, he's feeling puny, but he's eking out an existence, even with the holes in his membrane. Uh, well, we know, observably, that um, over time, it's a one-way d- decay process. Things that are complicated get less complicated. Things with lots of high concentration uh, lose concentration. And um, even we can represent DNA. It degrades over time because of copying errors. Things are running downhill in the universe, including cells. This is what we should think of when we look at natural, observable. And it's universal. And it's irreversible, can't go backwards unless we engineer it 
And even that takes a lot more energy in order to re-engineer. So look, a, a, a can of soup has all the ingredients for life. It's got the lipids, it's got the proteins, it's got the, it's got the carbohydrates. So why, why don't we, and it's highly concentrated in a can. So why don't we have, uh, you know, evolution of the first life from all these ingredients happening? Um, that's what, that's what, um, the, the, that's what our neighbors who deny creation and deny a supernatural beginning, that's what they have to overcome. That's the story they have to believe against all the odds. Well, what are the odds? Let's look at these 12. Um, well, we don't have time for all 12. So here's what they believe, guys. This guy, this researcher publishing in Quanta says, you start with a random couple of atoms, clump of atoms, and if you shine the light on it long enough, it should not be so surprising that you get a plant. As if solutions engineer themselves just because there's a need out there. No, no, no. You have to have an engineer to see the need and to craft a solution to meet that need. That's how it always works. Yes, I would be surprised. What about this guy? Have you heard of him? Bill Nye? Did you know he's just an entertainer and not a scientist? No wonder he says things like this. The origin of life just requires, oh, it just requires some raw material. Spark of life to emerge. Notice the magic words. Emerge. Well, how does that happen? How could it happen? Show me some details instead of just a magic word like emerge. What about our textbooks? Life began. Kale. Past tense? Present tense? Began? Past tense. Is he storytelling or or observing something that happened that he saw. Say storytelling. He's storytelling. Life began when organic molecules assembled in a coordinated manner. He's just telling a story. He wasn't there. Within a cell membrane, where did that come from? Began reproducing. Voila! Life arose from non-life via chemical evolution. So we throw a label onto it, and that explains it. How did that work? Give me the details. Let's look at these details. Carl Sagan said this. The origin of life must be, a high, must be a highly probable affair. As soon as conditions permit, up it pops. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then he also said extraordinary claims extra require extraordinary evidence. And that's what we're looking for is the evidence to support that crazy claim. Um, but with quotes like that and with instruction like that and with the mass media that we have telling us and assuming that, of course, life... And here's the circular reasoning. Obviously, life evolved. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know? There's another option. Uh, we are here because we were created, okay? Well, here's a big question. What must nature overcome to start life? We have 12 impossible steps. We have time to look at seven of them. So put on your chemistry hats, and here we go. The formation and concentration of building blocks. These are chemical building blocks. If you're, if you're going to build a building, you need planks, nails, all the raw construction materials, same thing with your bodies. Our bodies, even just one cell, needs building blocks. Phospholipids, um, uh, carbohydrates, proteins, nucleic acids, all these basic chemicals. Well, Darwin said it this 150 years ago in a letter to a friend. But if, and oh, what a big if. We could conceive in some warm little pond. Here it is, he's conceiving. You know my, the world's most influential fiction work? It's called On the Origin of Species by Darwin. No science in it. 
But he's conceiving of these stories. Conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein was formed ready to undergo still more complex changes. Magic wand, magic words, violating nature. Well, this famous Miller-Urey experiment in all the textbooks is supposed to show that life comes from non-life in the laboratory. And they have this elaborate glassware, and you have a heat source in one area, not in others. You have a, a spark source in one area, not the others. You take all the oxygen out, which there's no evidence of that ever happened on Earth, and um, zap, 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 and you get this chemical sludge that you have to, you have to take the sludge out of the mix, otherwise the zapping will erase the sludge that you just made. So you have to have a trap to collect it. By the way, all this is very cleverly designed by a designer, a chemist, and what do we get? We get some amino acids. A couple of those amino acids in small concentrations um, uh, are, used, are some of those used in life. But we've got to get lots of all the, chemi uh, of the amino acids just to get the proteins that we need to make life, like a cell, and we have to get them highly concentrated all in one place. Nature doesn't do that. It does the opposite. Okay, I've got a friend of mine who's actually on the board of directors at the Institute, and he also works with other groups, um, including other chemists, and they're trying to get this on the YouTube so that the kids don't see only the YouTubes that the atheists put out there where they're telling stories about how, well, this happened and that happened, and if you deny it, you're just a science denier calling names instead of doing science. Um, so he, he, he came up with, in partnership with an artist, uh, this pretty clever, you can look him up on YouTube, um, this pretty clever um, cartoon that illustrates this problem here. So let's pull this up. One dirty little secret of these origin of life experiments is that they don't actually start with plausible natural conditions. These experimenters, I don't want to say cheated, let's say they, um, they cheated, they sort of just cheated. These scientists begin with pure industrial strength ingredients. These are never found in nature like that in such extreme concentrations and purity, certainly not all in the same location. Billions of dollars worth of precise machinery created and operated by thousands of very intelligent people in labs all around the world over the course of many decades is what gets us to the point where these experiments can even begin. Another dirty little secret of these origin of life experiments lies in the presentation of their results. Even cheating like they did, what exactly do they end up with? The vast majority of what they make is actually toxic garbage. For example, in this paper, over 99% of what they make is not only unwanted, but effectively destroys the building block's ability to form more complex molecules. The very process that makes these building blocks also critically stops them dead in their tracks. A little detail your biology textbook may have left out. The third cheat is something called relay synthesis. They buy industrial strength ingredients to start with, make mostly garbage out of it, but may produce trace amounts of something they wanted. Like in this experiment, they yielded 0.011% of the nucleobase adenine. Then they declare success. These chemicals can technically be turned into adenine, even though it is unavailable to actually do anything because it's surrounded by garbage or consumed by side reactions and would quickly degrade, but whatever, details, details. For the next experiment, rather than starting with what the previous experiment actually produced, this mixture of garbage, 
Instead, they now feel justified in purchasing pure adenine from a laboratory supply shop to further cheat at the next step toward life. And this sort of thing happens over and over again, completely detached from reality. So do you, do you, you get the gist? Origin of life experiments. We're trying to prove what we already believe. We're trying to backfill our faith in abiogenesis, life from non-life. And they produce papers and they get published in science journals. But uh, these scientists look at the faults and flaws with those studies and reveal them to all of us. I so appreciate the work that they're doing, putting those videos on the internet. Besides all that, guanine, tyrosine, proline, you need the first two for DNA and you need the last one for proteins. And there's no natural process that makes these. The only come from enzymes. What's an enzyme? It's like a protein robot and it has a specific job. It grabs this kind of molecule or chemical, it grabs that kind and it either puts them together or it grabs a molecule and breaks it apart. And it does the same thing over and over. That's what they do. That's what, but you have to have these little enzymes, these little robots inside cells or you don't get the cell. You have to have them all pre-made even to make the basic building blocks like these three specifically. Well, that's the first hurdle, and that's just one. Um, and it doesn't happen. So that's it. Origin of life, dead in the water. It can't even jump the first hurdle, um, let alone any of the other. And if you can't get past step one, if you can't concentrate the building blocks, you can't make the building blocks, let alone concentrate them, then you're just going to have garbage chemical soup that just gets dispersed through space and time, and you'll never get life. Never would have got life. You have to have someone outside who understands these things, brings them together on purpose. I've got a theory about that that I'm going to share with you in a second. Now, there's another big word. It's called chirality. You've got to solve the chirality issue. So just like you have two hands, and each hand has, if you're healthy, one thumb, four fingers, something like that. Maybe a pinky, you know, you can name all the fingers. Now... If you, put, if you put them, superimpose them, they're handed. They're, they're different, so they don't, they don't go on top of each other. And so the same is true with chemicals. But it turns out that um, naturally you can form these chemicals, and they come out a 50-50 mix of left-handed and right-handed versions of each of these chemicals, including like amino acids that make up proteins. And, uh, but you've got to have, have left-handed only. So the proteins that make up your body are all left-handed versions of all the amino acids, millions and billions of them. And they're constantly maintained so that you have only left-handed all the time. Left, left, left. And uh, don't take my word for it. Just listen to the researchers and chemical society reviews. If only one amino acid is replaced by its optical counterpart, its chiral counterpart. In other words, if only one amino acid in a protein is replaced with a right-handed one, the formed protein will not fulfill its tasks. It, can't, it can no longer do its robot function because it's the wrong shape. That's what he's saying. It's, it, it loses its ability to do its job. What about DNA? See these little bubbles? Each bubble represents an atom, so we know very precisely what DNA looks like, where every atom fits and how it works together. And even the building blocks of DNA have chirality, chirality. And they're right-handed. You've got to have, in fact... There's a chiral position at three spots. So it's position number one on that little 
deoxyribose, that's the name of the sugar. The sugar is in blue, it's got the little oxygen within the ring, you see it? Five-sided shape, sugar, deoxyribose. I'm going to use a lot of words tonight, so keep up. <laughs> okay, at position number one, the first sugar there, uh, that's one, two, three, fifth sugar, uh, we've got, uh, you, it could be positioned this way or that way. At position two, you can have it left-handed or right-handed, and at position three, you can have it left-handed or right-handed. So two times two is four, four times two is eight, so every single nucleotide that makes up our DNA has eight different chiral versions, but they're all right-handed in our DNA, constantly maintained in our bodies by enzymes, little robots that scour the DNA, make sure that it's all correct all the time. Um, what about what about this one? Solution for the water paradox. Have you heard about the water paradox as it relates to the origin of life from non-life? The water paradox? Well, here it's pretty simple. Chemicals need water because you need water to bring this chemical to that chemical so that chemistry can happen. And you've got to have biochemistry happen in order to have life. However, the very water that's there that brings chemicals together so you can do chemistry and biochemistry the water molecules react with the biochemicals and break them down. Water destroys chemicals, but you need water. Well, the Lord Jesus thought of that, and he designed these little proteins shaped like footballs. They're like little egg chambers. They're called chaperonins. So as new proteins are formed, many of them, they get injected inside this chaperonin, and the chaperonin um, keeps the water out so that the protein can form the right shape as it's inside this little capsule. See the ribbons diagram? That, that's just a way to depict the, the shape of these, um, of these chaperonin proteins. Um, but we know the position of every atom in these proteins using all kinds of super cool, this is cryo-electro, um, sorry, um, cryo-EM uh, structure. So, um, electron microscopy. It's a new technique and it's just revolutionizing our microscopic view of these biochemicals that make up life. Well, here's the thing. Proteins need the chaperonin for the protein to form properly so you can have life, but the chaperone itself needs proteins to make it. In fact, it is a protein. So which came first, the proteins that need chaperonin or the chaperonins that need the proteins? I have a theory about this, and it comes from Psalm 33, uh, verse 6. He spoke, and it was done. That's it. He spoke, and it was done. All done, all at once. That's what you need to solve all this stacks and stacks of problems that nature cannot overcome. We need a supernatural cause to produce these living effects called cells. What's next? Oh, consistent linkage of building blocks. You've got a building block here, a building block there, Let's say you bring them together by some uh, amazing process that we don't know of, and now what's going to happen? You have to, you have to link them the right not this way, not this way. They need to link the exact right way. So what's going to make sure that they link the right way? We're going to skip that. Okay. What about biopolymer reproduction? Oh, these are fun experiments. The first life, the first cell, had to be able to reproduce already right out of the bag. But what's it take to reproduce a cell? Well, it's just too much too complicated. So origin of life researchers, they design these experiments to show that uh, let's just get a molecule to reproduce. And they call this chemical evolution. And they need to be able to replicate a molecule 
but have some errors so that there's differences in generations of molecules. This is kind of described in books like this, how chemistry becomes biology. I mean, you might as well just say, we're dedicated to atheism despite all the odds. And he says in this book, molecular self-replication is a reality. We don't need a God. Molecules just do it on their own. For example, look at this, published in the journal Cell. This is one of the highest, most reputable articles, uh, uh, journals uh, on the planet. Just two months ago, I got a paper published there, um, not in this subject, but in mammoth bone work I'm doing. Different topic. But what an honor to be in there, but uh, except for this kind of stuff, and they call it self-replicating RNA enzymes. Well, here's what they actually did. If you read the details of the paper, here's an here's a enzyme, and these little letters show the nucleotides. These are the building blocks of this biochemical. So it goes from the right, goes to the left, G-G-A-A-G-U-U-G-U. See that? Okay. Maybe you don't see it. Laser pointer. See that? Okay. It's like the bouncing ball when we were kids. G-G-A-A-G-U-U. Okay, these are the letters. But those are just letters that represent chemicals. So that's guanine, guanine, adenine, guanine, uracil. And it's in this exact order. Now these researchers started with all these, all this already assembled. And then they assembled substrate A and substrate B, already pre-assembled. They put them in the mix. And they made sure that this little joint section here between this G and this U had a triphosphate on the G and a hydroxyl on the U so that when you bump them together, they joined again and, oh, self-replicating. Wow, it did it all by itself. Did it do it all by itself? No, they manufactured these exactly so that it would definitely link together. It's kind of like saying, we're going to make a car, make another car all by itself. We'll start with half a car and we'll use another half a car. We'll bring them together and then we'll take a third car and we'll nudge the cars together. Cars make themselves, look. That's, that's all they did. The world's first self-replicating car. Um, so they overstated the case for sure. That's all they're doing. And they're just, they're just really demonstrating that it takes intelligent design in order to produce intelligently designed things, even if they're really, really small. Okay, what's next? We're going to leapfrog up to the means for repair, re- repairing biopolymers. Repairing. DNA, you've got you to repair your DNA because it's always wearing down and getting errors in it. If you don't have this, you're just going to die. Um, so DNA rep- is damaged constantly, and it's got to be repaired. And we have hundreds of enzymes that constantly scour the DNA in our bodies looking for errors and flagging them and saying, come over here, fix this error. And another enzyme will go scouring for the flags, finds a flag, comes in, and repairs the DNA. There's excision pathways, there's a short patch, long patch, and you have all these enzymes involved. You got to have them all. But see, the thing is, DNA itself has the building instructions to make the DNA repair enzymes. Are you following me on this? DNA needs repair machines, but the repair machines need DNA. So which came first? Oh, I think they came together at the same time. I think he spoke and it was done. 
And that explains why we have these interdependent systems that are integral and, and vital for life. What's next? Selectively permeable membranes. Membranes. Man, I had a microbiology professor, and he would pontificate about, he was talking about his coffee, and he put cream in his coffee, and he watched the cream swirl around, and then he saw little oil bubbles rise to the surface. And then he said, and that demonstrated to me that the membranes, which are made of little oils, could just happen. And so he's persuading us all, generation after generation of students at the university, that membranes just happen. Well, that's lipids, which is oil. Um, and when you have lipids, they naturally congregate in this pattern here with water molecules abo above and or below. Uh, but is that a membrane? Absolutely not. Membranes are way more complicated. You've got to have membranes um, the way they are in real cells to keep protons inside to manage the pH, because if you have a whole lot of protein, protons, that means you're getting more acidic, and oh, those protons are going to do too much, too much damage to the biochemicals of life. So you have, to, you have to have something where you can pull protons in and push protons out and maintain the balance of protons so you can have the right pH for life. You even have to have meters, like detectors. How many protons do we have? Let's get rid of some. And we have to have portals to eject protons or pull protons in. So membranes have all these things. And they have chaperones to make those membranes. So you have to have, look at this, you have to have globular proteins, glycoproteins, you have to have carbohydrates, glycolipids, cholesterols to stabilize the membrane itself, peripheral proteins, integral proteins, channel proteins, alpha helices. You have to have all these. Wow, 142 separate proteins are in the simplest bacteria, our little sad, sick mycoplasma. So you've got to have all 142 or the membrane just breaks down and the germ dies. I have an idea about how you get all 142 all at once. Since those membranes got to have the proteins, but you also need the membrane in place in order to make the proteins that stabilize the membrane, <laughs> you've got to have them both at the same time. I think he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verse 6. The Lord Jesus gets credit for making the first life. He didn't just make one cell. He made just like he said, when he said, in Genesis chapter 1. And the science of chemistry, biochemistry, really backs it up. Let's talk about energy real quick. ATP is this energy molecule of life. It's this battery storage. Um, it's adenosine with three phosphates. Each phosphate is a phosphorus atom, surrounded by oxygen atoms. You've got one, two, three of those. The last one is so far away from the main body of the adenosine, which is shown here in blue and black, that it's, it it's easily pops off. That last phosphate just jumps off and releases a little bit of energy when it does. Well, it turns out that the enzymes that run all the processes in our cells, what processes do we need to run in our cells? Uh, well, we need to take out the garbage. Uh, we need to uh, scour the DNA for errors. We need to look if there's proteins that aren't working, and we need to tear those up and recycle those proteins that aren't working. We need to transport uh, uh, enzymes that are, that are manufactured from the manufacturing center. You have to transport those to where they're going to be useful. So those little transport uh, um, 
mobile uh, uh, machines. All this work that's going on inside a cell, it's all coordinated and managed. It's like a city. It's like a universe-sized city, but it's microscopic. All those machines, almost all of them, run on one energy source, ATP. Okay, do you, so, so what happens when you put gasoline in your diesel car? Does it run? Hamster Huey and the gluey kablooey. No, it doesn't work. Because that machine is designed for diesel and diesel only. Do bananas have energy? Are you awake tonight at all? Is it, am I the only one? Yes, bananas have energy. You eat the banana and you get the energy from it. But can you stuff a banana down your, your engine? To The engine's not made to run on bananas. It's made to run on a particular kind of fuel. Electric fans are made to run on electric energy. Well, these, ener- these, mo- these machines in our cells are made to run on ATP. That's all I'm trying to say. Uh, a- adenosine triphosphate. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the energy manufacturing center of the cell called a mitochondria. And it's shown right here. Here's a mitochondria, at least a, a, a cartoon of it there. It's got all these folded membranes. You've got to have membranes there to make it. And embedded on these membranes, here's an electron micrograph um, using an electron microscope to look at these membranes. And inside these membranes is magic happening, so to speak. And here we have the outer membrane, the inner membrane, where the pH is tightly controlled. And we've got this suite of coordinated enzymes embedded on this inner membrane. And they're doing their jobs. They're pumping protons. Pump, pump, pump. Pump the protons out into the intermembrane space. So let's just review that. See this? This is the inner membrane here. Here's the outer membrane. And between those two membranes, you have the, the, the intermembrane space. Okay? And so they're pump, we're pumping protons out and into this intermembrane space in between the two membranes that are inside the mitochondria. Well, who cares? Why are we doing this at church? I mean, I know we're like looking up at the, opening the hood, looking at the engine. I'm saying this is the carburetor and this is the numerator and the denominator and this is how all these things work. But when we dedicate ourselves to just a few minutes of this, we come out the other side going, wow, I never knew you, Lord Jesus, took care of these details all the days of my life, and I didn't know you were doing it, and you've been faithful to maintain every cell and to give all my cells all the energy they need. Science, done right, should lead us to worship. But you've got to go through and look at the engine parts in order to get there. So that's what we're doing. So we have all these enzymes uh, pumping out these protons. And then what do the protons do? They're going to go through this channel right here. And the channel actually, uh, well, I'll show you. These are electron micrographs of these protons, I'm sorry, of these um, enzymes. And each enzyme is called, and it's my favorite enzyme. Yes, I have a favorite enzyme. And it's called ATP synthase because it's building all those ATPs that we need in order to run almost all the machines that are in our cells. Well, here's an um, illustration of how ATP synthase functions and operates. It's got a stator on the outside. It's got a rotor on the inside. Uh, um, and that's what biologists call them. And it has, do you see at the top, it has rocking cams. So cams rocking there. And as those protons um, travel through this gap right in between the stator and the rotor, 
it's turning the rotor, which, and on the inside, the, where, the, where you see where it's blue right here, do you see the blue bit? Yeah, so the blue bit has a little head on it, and as it rotates, it bumps the cams out, and then they fall back into place. So that's what's happening with the cams. As a rotator, it bumps, 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 bumps. And then what's happening there is you get ADP plus phosphate joins at those cams, and then it gets bumped, and then every time it gets bumped, it's going to join that last phosphate onto the end of the ADP, making it a new ATP, which then gets released, and then it gets channeled and, and, and pumped out of the mitochondria, and then pumped out through channels into the cell, and can be used by all these cellular systems. Well, this leads us to yet another question. The ATP synthase itself needs ATP to have made it because the enzymes that build the, proton, the proteins that make ATP, those enzymes already need ATP. But on the other hand, ATP itself needs ATP synthase in order to get the ATP. So you have to have both at the same time. I have a theory about how that may have happened. <laughs> he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's our God. He's that powerful. He gets the credit. He deserves the credit. Just a couple more. Here's what's happening when DNA gets copied. These are some of the enzymes doing all that work. Um, one strand gets copied in the forward direction. Another strand gets copied in reverse. And then when it meets up, there's a special enzyme that clamps onto the DNA and patches it all together. And um, this is running at jet engine speed when cells are in this mode of copying their DNA. Um, this is oversimplified. There are many other enzymes holding these in place. Um, there, this is all happening inside the nucleus of the cell and in specific zones within the nucleus. Um, and then the nucleus gets dissolved uh, um, on purpose, and then the, the DNA gets uh, divided, and we have cell division happening. So you've got to have DNA. That's what's carrying the code, the, the, like the blueprints, well, copying DNA needs 25 prote proteins. I just showed you like four. Um, they're called polymerase. Some of them are called polymerases. One of them is called helicase because it unwinds the DNA. You've got to have that too. 25 proteins minimum required to make life, to sustain life. Mycoplasma, the simplest life. There's no such thing as simple life because it's got this stuff. Hyper, mega, super complicated. That's a technical term I brought from Texas. Hyper, mega, super complicated. DNA copying needs all 25 proteins, but guess what? What codes for those 25 proteins and the shape that they should take? The DNA. You've got to have the proteins to make the DNA, and you've got to have the DNA to make the proteins. Which came first? How can you evolve one into the other? You have to have them both at the same time. I have a theory about that. He spoke, and it stood fast. It was done. Here's the enzyme that makes proteins. It's called a ribosome. Inside the ribosome, you have all this machinery going on, building proteins, one amino acid at a time. Same thing. Proteins need RNA, but RNA also needs proteins. He spoke, and it was done. And in fact, each one of these subsystems requires the other system. They depend on each other, these systems. You've got to have the DNA to make protein, but you also have protein to make the cell membrane. And you have to have the cell membrane to have the protein being made. 
and you have to have the energy system to fuel all this, and you have to have the, the membrane to protect the energy system, and it turns out that you have this, what some biologists call a horrendous spaghetti of interdependence. Not only do you need this, but you also need that, and you also need this, and you also need that. And you've got to have all these parts all in one place, all at the same time, in order to have just the simplest cell. I have a theory about that. He spoke. It was done. What we see in real life is death and decay, um, not nature building these things up. Twelve impossible steps, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Guys, life comes from life. It always has. Life, the first life, came from the living God. Alive, and he offers us everlasting life. And what's impossible for nature is possible for God. He could do anything. He could make these micro-machines, and he puts them in our bodies. Make sure it takes care of all the details for us. What's impossible in our sinful nature is to be good enough for him. To be good enough to live forever with him. We can't do that. But what's impossible for nature, what's impossible for us, is no problem for God. He can take our sins, drown them in the sea, bury them in his son, the Lord Jesus, who took our sins on the on the cross for us, and he can, what's impossible for us to be with God, God made it possible through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give him credit, not just because he can save us from our sins and give us everlasting life with him, but we also give him credit and glory and honor because he made us fearfully and wonderfully. He gets all the credit. Have a great night. Good evening. I'm uh, Thad Blunt. I'm the pastor here at uh, Grace. And um, this afternoon, Dr. Thomas and I had a graduation ceremony. We went from um, just uh, respecting each other as a pastor and teacher to um, being friends. And I don't know how that sounds to you, but it was fantastic. We had a, a good time just talking about life and ministry, hard stuff, really, a lot of it. But it's nice to have uh, a friend in ministry, a friend in life who um, focuses on the Lord and wants the Lord to get all the glory. I was thinking as Dr. Thomas was um, wrapping up, I won't read it, but maybe it's something you could read when you get home. Um, but just reread Psalm 139 where it talks about being fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know that I'll ever read that the same. Um, I just really appreciate what he brought out tonight. I do want to thank um, Andrea Stovall, our children's director, for putting all this together. Um, she's done a tremendous amount of work. I appreciate you guys supporting uh, us tonight and coming out. And I am thankful that you wore clothes. You all look great in them. And um, please come back tomorrow night with clothes on again, all right? And then on Wednesday night, we will have a dino fest, and the kids are going to have a great time. And even the adults will, right? Us grown-up children will have a great time as well. So um, thank you guys for coming out tonight. I want to have a word of prayer, and I'll let you go, all right? 
Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we are able to, uh, as much as we want to, be in your word. Uh, we're free to do that. We live in a, a country that allows us to, um, at least to this point, to be in your word. So I pray that we would eat it up, chew it up, and um, so that we'd be able to share with others uh, about the good news of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I uh, thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and I pray that we would represent you well as you give us opportunity every day to go out and share about the good news of Christ. And so keep us safe as we go to our homes. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.